0: These may be challenging times, but have hope and listen to the untold health stories about incredible people who have committed their lives to better their communities. Diverse health activists, direct medical providers, community organizers that are helping our communities to get healthier and stronger. Stories of local heroes during the pandemic and even before that proves over and over again that people can come together during times of need and make the world a better place. Stories you would never hear of, except at Healthcare Untold, hosted by Barbara Ann Garcia. Our guest today is Nicole Lemoreau, the CEO of the National Association of Free and Charitable Clinics. Well, welcome to Healthcare Untold, Nicole. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're excited also. And I uh, just want to thank you and thank you. I can't thank you enough for the work that you're doing. Um, you know, uh, health care access uh, to over two million people that the clinics that you represent and uh, to the most vulnerable communities. And I don't, don't think people know that how important it is for free clinics and charitable charitable clinics like you represent. You know, they really run on a fine budget. And they're really based with volunteers. Um, and that's really important in a community that may have limited health access. And we work a lot with rural communities and you know, it, would take, it takes a long time to get to um, their doctors. Uh, so these free clinics and charitable clinics throughout the United States are a real important foundation for their health access for so many people. And um, so we're really excited to hear about your personal journey uh, through your own health care uh, access and then also to hear about your work uh, with the National Association of Free and Charitable Clinics. So let's get going, Nicole. Oh sounds
1: great. Uh, well I for me personally, I did a great job in Washington, DC. I was excellent at making rich people richer. That's what I was doing. I am very talented at talking. My dad told me to get a job that you're good at and like then get somebody to pay you for it and I'm really only good at talking. Um and so I was in this space where I knew I was doing really well but I felt unfulfilled and I felt like I didn't know why I was doing what I was doing. The same morning I woke up and had that. It was Valentine's Day actually since we just celebrated it and um I went to the doctor for what I thought was just a tiny bump on my arm and it turned out to be a melanoma and when I was talking to the doctor he had given me um, a couple of shots and said we were going to move to the next step and um, almost immediately I would say within 15 minutes my breast started getting an orange-like feel to it and it orange skin and it, I said to the doctor, oh, boy, those shots really got me, you know, I, I didn't know. And the dermatologist said, that's, that's not right. We're going to put you in the ambulance and send you straight to the hospital. And I went to the hospital and that afternoon I found out that not only did I have melanoma, but I also had inflammatory breast cancer. And I uh, was 33 years old and I was, as the, you know, as they say, when we go into healthcare, you lose 80% of your hearing when the doctor is talking to you because I didn't have my notebook that I normally had. I didn't have anything. Um, and I walked out and all the only thing that stuck in my head, even though I had really great insurance, was that my first treatment was going to cost $250,000, but my insurance was only going to cover 80% of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I just... Called my parents and, and I didn't even process that I was telling my poor parents that their daughter has a very rare form of breast cancer. The first thing I said to them was, Mom, Dad, I have breast cancer, but what do uninsured people do when they don't have insurance to pay for things? Now, I'm not really certain where that thought came from. I'll be very honest. I it I just think the sticker shock hit me, or maybe it was uh divine intervention or the universe, whatever you believe in. Um, And my parents are both teachers and both of them were on the phone. And um, I still to this day uh, say to them, you are amazing people for your, the response. They said, well, we better research this and figure out what uninsured people do. And um, at that same moment, I said, okay, I'm going to go quit my job and move my apartment And my mom said, okay, maybe we don't need to do everything in the next 15 minutes. Like maybe we can slow down (laughs) a bit. Um, And then from there, I started doing research and found a few free clinics across the United States of America. And I didn't quit my job because I thought better of it that I needed to wait for a minute or two for that. And uh, the next day in... um, Back then, they still put advertisements in the classifieds of newspapers, and it just said, small healthcare group of people need help starting an association. And I called the phone number and come to find out that it was this group of free clinics were looking to start an association. And from there, it was history. I um, interviewed, they trusted me to take on this job, and I was able to start My journey as uh, the first full-time employee employee of this association ever had, as I was both an advocate and a patient at the exact same time. And I think being on both sides of the fence helped me work with the clinics to truly understand not just what they needed, but more importantly, what their patients needed so we could help people get healthier. That's my journey.
0: Yeah, that's... um an incredible journey. And, you know, it's so important. So many of us in um, healthcare uh, advocacy have had our own experiences, which kind of gives us that energy to why we do the work we do and the mission of it. But associations are so important because uh, you're in Washington, D.C. and yes. you represent these associ- these uh, clinics uh, on the Hill. Um, as well Mm -hmm. as really get in there with legislators to uh, support legislation, develop legislation. What other kinds of work do you do with your clinics? So, uh, not only do we, we do the advocacy work, I always jokingly
1: say, I will always get my 10,000 steps a day walking on the, uh, the halls of Congress. So my doctor's quite happy with that, but also the national organization serves as an educator. We bring together training opportunities for our providers and our, our non uh, medical volunteers as well, because so many training opportunities now are tied to billing and reimbursement. So they're tied to Medicaid, Medicare, or third-party insurance billing. And we see the uninsured people who either make too much money uh, to be on on Medicaid or not enough money to purchase insurance, or they live in those locations that did not expand Medicaid in any sort of way. Um, And so... There is a whole different type of training that is needing for the patients that we see than just the billing and coding that is done for so many providers. Also, given that many of our patients can't afford the medications because they don't have insurance that may be available to those that are on insurance. So we're we, we are an educator. We're a storyteller. We tell the stories of our patients and our providers. Uh, we also are an incubator. Uh, we think of new ways that care can be delivered with quality and compassion and how those new thought processes can be scaled across the 1400 clinics across the United States of America. And we also are a funder. We also bring forward um, work with private corporations to give funding to clinics so they can expand the work that they're doing in in their communities across the United States. And finally, we're a negotiator. Uh, We uh, have over 225,000 discounted donated or donated products and services that we work with our clinics. So as you mentioned at the beginning, um, you know, the average cost that... uh, or the average expenses of our clinics, just about $500,000. They're small, they're smaller budgets, but they'll be serving thousands of patients with that amount of money because they leverage the volunteerism that they can find in their community. So we help them save money as they can, as they're serving their patients as well.
0: So you may be doing bulk purchasing for the clinics. Is that one of the functions that you also do?
1: Absolutely. We um, negotiate on their behalf. So uh, they they can purchase what they need. Um, And then also we receive items for them as well. Um, So for example, during COVID, we were not part of the national stockpile. So our clinics were not receiving any PPEs from the government at all. Um, And just as you heard stories about hospitals and the, the safety net clinics, not receiving uh, masks or hand sanitizers. Our clinics were definitely not receiving them because again, we don't bill. So what we were able to do is work with some major generous, generous sponsors and uh, CVS Health, Warby Parker, the NFL and other groups sent masks to our office. Now we're an office of four people. That's, that's it. And we would open up the boxes and repack all of the boxes and then ship them out to our facilities. So uh, everything from negotiating with the lawyers to receiving on the, uh, and repacking that's, that's, we can do it all.
0: I call that sweat equity, right? So,
1: <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah,
0: and you know, um, I don't think people understand the fact that um, in the even in the community clinic world, that back office function is gets more and more expensive um, as healthcare gets more and more complicated. So it's so important that we support the local free clinics because they're really there to provide that uh, support for people in the community clinic movement has done incredibly well throughout the country and serving millions and millions of people. But I I don't want us to forget the importance of free clinics and charitable clinics. Uh, That's many of the roots of where the community clinics, um, the official federally qualified health centers came from. So it's really important they help us keep that mission.
1: I, you know, I really thank you for bringing that up, but there's the, we, we like to say we are the net below the safety net. So the community health centers, the recognized federal, um, clinics, they are the safety net in this country. They serve millions of people and they are our partners and we are so grateful for, for what the work that they do. And then we are the people that are in locations that those, uh, how those clinics are not located in. Um, many people don't understand that those clinics have to follow certain rules laid out by the federal government. They must be in medically underserved population areas. They must have a patient mix of, you know, so many rural, so many urban, and they, um, they too don't have the capacity to serve all of the uninsured people across the United States of America. And so we are just so grateful for the FQHCs and the rural health centers and then the free clinics that we are able to serve those patients that are completely uninsured and that may not be in the locations where the community health centers are located. But also um, we're able to work together to address the need of keeping people out of the ER So we can really use the emergency departments for emergencies. And between the rural health centers and the community health centers and the free clinics and our charitable clinics, we are the frontline provider serving care for the underserved in in our country. And I'd say underserved equals those who don't have insurance and those who do have insurance but are underinsured as well. And then also recognizing that Just because you have Medicaid or Medicare, that doesn't mean you have access to dental care. That doesn't always mean you have access to health, eye care, mental health care. And that's where, as I say, we're the safety net together. We're building that all together to serve the patient. So we can really look at that whole person health care in the best way that we can.
0: Tell us a little bit about what you're working on today.
1: Sure. I think that, uh, well, unfortunately, as we all know, in on May 11th, the public health emergency, the COVID public health emergency, as well as Medicaid unwinding, the, both of those are ending. So what that means is during COVID, the federal government um, declared a public health emergency. So that allowed providers, whether it be from a private office, doctor's office, the hospitals, or all the way down to free and charitable clinics, just more flexibility in serving patients during such a Tough time in our country. Um, And and then additionally, states were able to expand Medicaid um, to allow more people to have access to Medicaid so they could get access to tests and uh, treatment. Well, on May 11th, both of those are ending. And so that means that, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, that four to 10 million people will be uninsured um, at that point in time. And so the first thing we're gearing up for is an onslaught of new patients that are going to, uh, had a medical home or had a Medicaid card in their pocket and now no longer know where to go or how they, where they're going to get their care. So the first thing is gearing up our clinics to be ready, both their operations, as you talked about, and their clinical services. Um, also working with communities. So people understand that this is ending because so many times, uh, So many things are written at a level that even I don't understand the words that are used. So translating documents into that fourth to seventh grade reading level, making it real easy bullet points so people know where they have to go sign up or how they can go sign up. So that's the first thing that we're working on. The second thing we're working on is really that education component for our members, because things like the correct way to take a blood pressure. I'd say this is my my one of my most favorite stories of something we're working on right now, is that we um, a, one of our clinics decided to look at their the EKGs that they were ordering for their patients. And they realized that 70% of their patients were getting EKGs ordered because of their blood pressure was so high. And they looked at their clinical operations and realized that. All they were going to do was have the patient come in and sit down for five minutes before they took their blood pressure. And by the the fact that they had the patient sit down for five minutes, they were able to cut their EKG, orders down by 58% in the first two months. So wow. scaling programs like that, quality measures, learning collaboratives, how clinics can learn from each other, and how we can really understand to move the needle on health as opposed to just make an outcome. And I think there's a difference. So many people will say things like, we have to get someone's A1C under eight or to eight. Well, our board has said, well, that's great. We're getting it to eight is at the stroke level. We're getting them out of the stroke level. How about we get it down to seven or six so we can get them into a healthy level? So how do we continue with that quality measure Um and I, I really liked it because I know when I go to the doctor, the first thing they do is have me step on the scale. Then the next thing they do is they want to take my blood pressure. And already I'm off the scale, so my blood pressure sky high. So um, me being Absolutely. able to say to my doctor, you yeah. know, hey, maybe we should try this differently. The third thing we're working on is we have some amazing partnerships and dress, addressing issues um, for funding in the area of uh, food insecurity, equity and um uh, maternal health is, are the three areas right now we'll we'll launch other programs um as the year goes on but those are our top of mind that we're doing and and then finally our equity efforts after the murder of George Floyd our board of directors came out with a very strong statement and um we It wasn't just enough for our organization to say something. We knew we needed to do something. So we stopped at that moment, reorganized our entire board of directors, or re-looked at all of our 660 policies that our clinics used, hired an, an equity and diversity consultant to make sure that all of our documents were aligned, and we started a culture of belonging movement where all of our clinic directors and doctors are able to go through training themselves to learn how they need to change the work that's being done at their clinics. And I think one of the things I was most grateful for with the free and charitable clinics is for them to recognize that it's not enough just to be open. It is enough to ensure that the patients that are being treated are being treated equitably, compassionately, um, and with cultural competency uh, and really recognizing that some of the shifts we had to make may be uncomfortable um, for some of our volunteers um, and may be uncomfortable for even our patients to tell us what they need. But we really broke down that wall between um, provider and patient to really talk about how we needed to change so we could provide the best possible care. So those are the four main buckets, at least this work. On addition to the advocacy that, right. that you know, this week that we're working on.
0: <laughs> well, I'm sure every day is like one or two or three of those things and then another one that gets piled on for sure. And that's yes. the important work of association, being able to knit those issues for your membership and, and provide the work that they wouldn't be able to do because they're so busy serving um, their exactly. patients. And, you know, I really like the issue of the equity issue. You know, we worked a lot. I worked with the health department, And we really did a lot around uh, behavior health and doing that Mm -hmm. welcoming because that first initial contact, especially in the behavior health area, you know, it kind of helps people, especially, you know, when you go in and get your blood pressure, you're already going up because you're nervous. Well, think about that for a mental health client coming in. It's really that first initial welcome and uh, making patients feel like uh, you want them to be there for sure. And, you know, big ERs, um, I found having more concern about the safety of their staff, right? But that creates Mm -hmm. such a different environment for the patients to be there because it's so crowded and people are sick and um, and it's a real busy, you know, area. And the work that you're doing to reduce those emergency room visits are so important because you really want to keep those emergencies for the major emergencies. And that's why primary care and clinics like yourselves that you represent are so important. You talked about your food security program, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and access to food is uh, really shown to help and um, improve healthcare. Talk to us a little bit about that. Oh, sure. You know, food is medicine. I think that
1: we really need to recognize that. Um, And once we start to really, once we've started to explain that food is medicine and can be used for medicine um, to providers as well as to funders, it clicked. Um, The conversation about, if you live in and through my anti-racism work, I'm learning how to use different language. And so now I'm learning that instead of saying that um, places are located in food deserts, they're really food apartheid areas where people are choosing not to build mm-hmm. uh, grocery stores or locations in areas. And so that was a huge shift in my my brain um, because as we started to look at this, we started to recognize that you know, our many of our patients, the only place to go grocery shopping is either a bodega of some sort or a dollar store, um, not a grocery store or a fast food um, location, or maybe if they're lucky, a, a pharmacy that has something bigger or a gas station that has something bigger. And so many of our clinics started to help their patients and take them on a grocery run to those locations where they would go food shopping in those locations and understand how they, what they can buy with the money that they have, how it can be healthy for them. And then the clinics took it a step further and made cookbooks for people to follow. So they would understand how to do this. And if you're a diabetic, these are some of the ways that you need to eat your food and how you need to do it. And then our clinics then built the next step forward and started building uh, community gardens and places for people to learn how to grow their own food and to how to go and pick up food. That's in addition to the partnerships with the food banks and in addition to the programs that exist, but it really has helped people understand how to take control of their own health. Um, And I think sometimes I I was talking to a provider earlier and he was saying to me i just don't understand why people can't just get eat healthy and exercise more and then you'll be fine <laughs> and i had to say okay but that is such a place of privilege that you're saying that sentence and let me explain why um For example, if you're a Black individual in our country, we have recognized that you do not have the ability to go out for a run or a walk in the same way that I do as a white woman. So as a provider, your job is to help provide them with information on what kind of exercises can they do in a safe location? How can they feel connected? If you are someone who has no grocery store near you and you only have a dollar store and you have to split your money between maybe putting gas or getting a bus fare and what you have for food. You can't just tell people eat healthier. Finally, from my own personal experience, as I was explaining to him, I grew up in a very small town in Connecticut. I was always taller and heavier than every uh, girl that was around. And my, my family doctor, very nice man, he put me on a cookie diet. I ate a cookie for breakfast, I ate a cookie for lunch, and I ate a cookie for dinner. So that was back in the early 80s, so if I age myself, um, and no one showed me a food chart, no one showed me what I was supposed to be eating. It was only because my mother went to the library and did the learning herself that that I had that opportunity. And when I explained it to this provider, he was very honest and said, no one taught me that in medical school. They taught me to say, eat healthy and exercise more but I wasn't taught how to do that. And that's the other thing I really love about uh, the free and charitable clinics is we're training grounds for the next generation of providers. We do a great deal of rotation training and medical student trainings. And those students are very open with us saying, I need to learn more about this. And the stu- it's fun to watch the students learning how to garden at the same time our patients are learning how to garden and how um, it's becoming more of a pop- uh, an understanding of, okay, so if we could find a way to grow the food, then maybe there's a farmer who could help us give some food and maybe we could send some of the patients to work with the farmer so they can get some skills. And some of these programs have just grown into this massive massive cooperative of community helping community but also at the end of the day helping productivity in the economy in the in the area as well
0: Oh, that's wonderful and you know that's so important around healthcare that it's a such a comprehensive process and it also it also means how do you organize your community and together and so these clinics are a really uh, community uh, bringing people together and trying to help each other uh, get healthier. And that's so important. So any Absolutely. last words from um, from your association? I think the only thing
1: I would remind everyone is that um, when we get in the morning and we're healthy, we take our, our health for granted. And the minute that you are sick or someone that you love gets sick, that becomes your number one priority in your life. And so if we can all remember that um, each of us can make a difference in some small way or big way, no matter how you can, you can make someone else's life um, better. That could be a smile holding the door. That could be volunteering at a local clinic um, just to go out and, and make the world a little bit better than you found it in whatever way you can do it. That would make me happy.
0: <laughs> well, you're making us happy. Uh, Nicole Lamarro, the CEO of the National Association of Free and Charitable Clinics. Thank you every day for your work. Um, gracias on, on behalf of Healthcare Untold. Thank you.
1: Healthcare Untold. Healthcare untold.